But the, the title of my talk, you can see, is uh, Trolley Cases, Moral Psychology, and Double Effect. This uh, first topic will be familiar to, to some of you, I'm sure. But one basic disagreement in ethics is between consequentialism and non-consequentialism. And as representatives of consequentialism, I have pictures of uh, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. And their view as consequentialists is that the right action is the action that has the best consequences, or the right action is the action that causes the most good. And that's an um, appealing idea to say that when we act, we should do whatever causes the most good. And that's the basic idea of consequentialism. On the other hand, another idea that seems appealing is that some actions are wrong regardless of their consequences. There are some things that we should refuse to do. Yeah, murder and torture are some common examples that come up. Unfortunately, I don't want to spend a lot of time on Friday afternoon here talking about murder and torture. But those are examples that come up. It seems I should not even be open to the possibility or of uh, torturing a small child to make something good happen, even or to uh, murder one completely innocent person, even if that's the only way of saving 10 other people from being murdered. So these two ideas uh, contradict each other. Or they don't, um, to say that the right action is the action that causes the most good would mean that there are no actions that are wrong regardless of their consequences. We could say that murder and torture, adultery and so on are usually wrong because they usually don't cause the most good, but we couldn't rule them out in principle. And the consequentialist response, we had to say, well, if you're right, if we go along with this idea that some actions are wrong no matter what, then you're saying that sometimes we should choose worse outcomes over better outcomes, or a worse state of affairs over a better one, and that doesn't make any sense. Right? Why would we settle for what's worse over what's better? So that's the idea that we see here that would support consequentialism. On the other hand, if we accept consequentialism, it seems that we have to be open to doing anything. So there's nothing that we could rule out, and that doesn't sit well with a lot of people either. So this is a basic disagreement, and I was trying to make it as concise as I could. I think these are the fundamental ideas that would drive people towards consequentialism and also prevent people from believing in consequentialism. Now, now, one example that illustrates this disagreement is a pretty famous one, so we don't have to be talking about uh, torturing and murdering children. It's a case about a runaway trolley and pushing a fat man off the bridge to stop the runaway trolley. And I imagine some of you have heard about this example before. If there's time, I'll go into some of the history about different trolley cases and talk about why this case came up. But the idea is if we push the fat man off the bridge, that will stop the runaway trolley from hitting the five people, which will save the five people's lives. So in terms of lives saved, if I push the man, I kill one person and save five. If I do nothing, the man on the bridge lives, but the five people on the trolley tracks are killed. So it seems that the consequentialist is going to say that if there's nothing else that we know about the case, the right action is to push the man off the bridge. But that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. It, feels wrong to a lot of us, including me, to push that man off the bridge, even if we know that pushing him is going to save five people. So this is one of the examples that comes up as an illustration of the difference between a consequentialist view, which would say, do whatever has the best consequences, even if that means pushing the man, and a non-consequentialist view, which would say that some actions like this are wrong, regardless of the consequences. And as an aside, uh, you might hear people talk about uh, deontology or a deontological view. 
I think it's easier simply to say non-consequentialist, but if you hear about deontology, that would be uh, the uh, other view uh, besides consequentialism. Okay, so here's this basic disagreement, and people can go back and forth talking about this example and um, modifying the example, you know, what if the fat man is a villain, or what if the fat man has organs that can save five other people, and so on. But uh, one suggestion for resolving this disagreement comes from a moral psychologist. And Joshua Green, the fellow whose picture you see here, is probably the most well-known person who makes this sort of argument, that the way to resolve these disagreements is to think about the way that our brains work when we're making different moral judgments. So instead of going back and forth with um, more and more examples or trying to make different views seem more intuitively plausible or less intuitively plausible, what Green and others do is study how we come to these different moral judgments. And there are different ways of doing this. You can see um, uh, uh, part of these studies include fMRIs, or uh, functional magnetic, how's it go? Uh, functional magnetic uh, uh, resonance imaging, I believe is what that stands for, a brain scan, basically. And that's probably the most um, famous way of um, studying how the brain makes different moral judgments. There are other ways, too, like looking at uh, which kinds of moral judgments are made more quickly versus which ones are made uh, more slowly. Um, having people solve different kinds of math problems before they make different moral judgments. And what these, th these different studies seem to show, at least according to Green and other moral psychologists, is what you see on the screen here. That consequentialist moral judgments, like the judgment that you should push the fat man off the bridge, tends to be supported by cognitive brain processes, or kind of... Um, controlled conscious reasoning. When we think slowly and carefully about the case, according to these studies, we're more likely to say that you should push the fat man to save five people. On the other hand, non-consequentialist moral judgments, like the judgment that it's wrong to push the man even if it would save five lives, those sorts of judgments tend to be supported by automatic uh, emotional responses. And the analogy that Green uses is thinking about a camera that has automatic mode and manual mode. And uh, automatic mode is nice because it's fast and immediate. In most cases, it's going to be reliable. But if you're a good photographer, you don't want to rely only on automatic mode. You want to be able to adjust settings in different kinds of lighting or different kinds of, of uh, situations. And that's the idea that um, our, our brain has a similar kind of um, dual processes in it where we can make some judgments quickly and automatically, or we can make some judgments by uh, reasoning through them, and that tends to take longer. So conscious or cognitive brain processes would be slower, but more flexible, and automatic emotional brain processes would be faster, but less flexible, sort of like with a camera. And uh, I'm not an expert in psychology, but this would be the conclusion that some moral psychologists draw from different studies that they've done. Um, including brain scans, looking at what parts of the brain are active, but like I said, also measuring how long it takes to reach different judgments, and so on. So that's the first premise of this debunking argument for consequentialism. And I call it a debunking argument for consequentialism. It's not just my label, because the idea here is to debunk the reasons that people have to disagree with consequentialism. Green and other people who make this sort of argument are consequentialists, 
And they're trying to find a way to make us distrust the sorts of judgments that would lead us away from consequentialism. Now, simply stopping here wouldn't be good enough because in, in some cases, emotional brain processes are perfectly reliable. Um, and I don't know if anybody plays chess, but you may have seen grandmasters uh, play different people at the same time, walk around from table to table and make moves very quickly, not really calculating all the different variations, just seeing things like my, my knight ought to go here because it'll be more active, or if I put the queen there, the queen will be poorly placed. Whereas somebody like me, who isn't a, a, as good, would really have to think through these things and try to imagine all these different moves. You know, if I go here and he goes there, what will I do? Whereas for a grandmaster, that sort of thing might happen very quickly. So the uh, grandmaster's emotional or automatic responses are going to be more reliable than my conscious reasoning about where to move. And Green certainly wouldn't deny that. So the argument doesn't simply stop here and say that because consequentialist judgments are produced by cognitive brain processes, we should trust them. And because your, a judgment that you shouldn't push the fat man is uh, produced by emotional brain processes, we, we shouldn't trust it. That wouldn't be good enough. What Green also argues is that emotional brain processes are fine, or, or, or they can be reliable, but only in familiar situations. And, uh, or to put it negatively, emotional brain processes are not reliable when we're in unfamiliar situations. So when the grandmaster at chess is playing chess and, ha and the grandmaster has uh, automatic responses, those are certainly reliable because the grandmaster has played plenty of chess. If the grandmaster were relying on automatic responses to think about fishing or playing poker or driving a car, there's no reason to think that the, the grandmaster's automatic responses would be reliable. In fact, if the grandmaster sat down to play poker for the first time and started winning a lot or, uh, or by playing very quickly, you might think that he's cheating or there, there's something wrong here. So the idea here is that uh, just like with a camera, the automatic settings are reliable in familiar situations. Like if you're taking a picture outside or taking a picture indoors in typical lighting, then you generally can rely on the camera's automatic settings. Certainly for me, it, it, I'm probably going to get a better picture if I rely on the camera's automatic settings than if I try to adjust them manually. But in unfamiliar situations, that wouldn't be true. If you're taking a, a photograph in some kind of unusual situation, that's where a good photographer is going to get better results by using manual settings or, or switching the camera from automatic mode into manual mode. And consequentialists who rely on moral psychology, like Green, make a similar argument about our lives in general, that our automatic uh, emotional responses or our gut reactions are reliable in many cases. If you see a large bear chasing you and you feel afraid and want to run away, that's an appropriate automatic reaction, and it's good to trust that. You can imagine our ancestors on the African savanna, if they see a if they have bears there. If they see a tiger or a lion or something chasing them, yeah, you had to have better run. That kind of a flight instinct would be reliable in, um, in many situations. But Green and others argue that the sorts of cases that we're talking about now, like the trolley case, are unfamiliar because it's unusual in human history or it's something new in human history that you could save five lives by doing something like pushing the man off the bridge. 
And there are other examples we could talk about that would be illustrations of these kind of uh, unfamiliar situations, at least according to Green and the debunking argument. So the idea here is that emotional brain processes are fine, but only in certain situations. When it comes to a situation like the trolley case, we shouldn't trust our gut reactions because this is a new kind of case in human history. And the example I have on the screen is about millions and billions. That'd be another example. Your kind of gut reactions when you're dealing with numbers like uh, five and 10 and 20, you're saying, well, it seems like 20 is a lot more than two. That's fine. But when it gets to bigger numbers, we're talking about millions and uh, billions, really our minds aren't really made for comprehending that. Right? It's hard to get you know, good, reliable uh, intuitions about billions because it's so large. You see the, the picture here. I think that's uh, a thousand versus a million versus a billion. When we hear a million versus a billion, it sounds kind of the same to us, at least to me, not being uh, an expert at math. I know, so if I stop and think about it, that a billion is much, much larger than, than a million. In fact, it's a thousand times larger th than a million. But a kind of gut reactions, you, you, you think about a million dollars versus a billion dollars, it might seem sort of close. I mean, we know that a billion is a lot more, but we may not really be have a good gut reaction about numbers this big or numbers that are very small as well. So that's one example that's not too controversial. Our kind of mathematical intuitions would be reliable for dozens and handfuls of things, not so much when we get into billions and trillions and quadrillions and so on. And Green makes a similar argument about our moral intuitions that we shouldn't trust them in unfamiliar cases, specifically where you have these sorts of cases where you can save a bunch of people by inflicting some kind of violence on one person. We have a negative gut reaction about inflicting violence on one person, but Green thinks that that negative gut reaction is unreliable. Not that he's telling us not to have it, but saying that we shouldn't trust it in these kind of situations. Okay, so finally, the key premise really to the debunking argument is what you see here. Green and others are that the only reason we have to reject consequentialism are these intuitions about unfamiliar cases, because they take it as obvious that we should do whatever causes the best consequences. Green in his book calls that a splendid idea, that we should do whatever causes the most good or best consequences, best state of affairs. Um, and you can see in this case here, the consequentialist is gonna say that obviously the right thing to do is to save five lives. You might feel bad about it, but if you let those feelings um, cloud your, your judgment, you'd be sort of like a paramedic who wouldn't uh, want to, to make somebody bleed or would be supposed to give CPR, but doesn't want to push too hard on somebody's chest. We'd say, now, I understand it may not feel good to perform CPR and hear somebody's ribs cracking as you're performing it. That's not a very pleasant thought, but that's what has to be done to save this person's life. Or if you're a doctor and you need to perform emergency heart surgery, it might not feel good to cut into a person's heart, but if that's what needs to be done to save a life, obviously that's what you should do. And consequentialists along the same lines argue that it may not feel good to think about pushing the fat man off the bridge to stop that trolley, but that's the right thing to do. And the reason why we disagree is because we're letting our emotional reactions cloud our judgment about these kinds of cases. Okay, so that's a quick summary of a debunking argument for consequentialism. Again, the idea is to try to break the standoff between consequentialist and non-consequentialist 
we'll think about the way that our brains produce different moral judgments, and we'll see when these judgments are reliable and when they aren't. And the consequentialists argue that the sorts of brain processes that produce non-consequentialist judgments aren't reliable in these sorts of cases, in unfamiliar cases. Okay. Now, so far, I've been trying to present that argument. I think it is an argument worth taking seriously. A lot of times when I talk with colleagues who aren't consequentialists, they'll think the argument is ridiculous at first. I think it is a serious argument and one that we should take seriously. I'm not persuaded by it, of course. There are a few ways that we could challenge it. One way, which I won't say anything about, is to challenge the different studies. It, you, you certainly could... Um, poke holes in the design of these different experiments or challenge different ways of interpreting data about fMRIs and response times and so on. That would be more of an argument within moral psychology, though, to argue about the reliability of these brain processes. I think it seems plausible to me that when we say that we shouldn't push the fat man off the bridge, that is a kind of gut reaction. So I don't think it's, I'm not sure that these studies are conclusive, but it does make sense that when we rely on our gut reactions, we're probably not going to say that we should do whatever would save the five lives. But if we st start thinking through it, the, the, the case and added up numbers, we're more likely to reach a consequentialist judgment. That seems basically right to me. But even if we grant that point, there are some other problems here. And the main problem, I think, with this sort of argument is the assumption that judgments about unfamiliar cases are the only reason we have to reject consequentialism. There are certainly other arguments against consequentialism. And I think if you read some of these arguments, you'll find that uh, consequentialists like Green or Peter Singer, they tend to be very clear writers, but I don't think that they always understand the views of people who disagree with them. Uh, Dr. Lee and others have argued at, at some length that one fundamental problem with consequentialism is that there's no way of comparing different goods in the way that consequentialism requires. We talk about something like the good of a marriage versus the good of a joke. These can be two good things, laughing at a joke or being married, but to ask something like, how many jokes does it take to equal one marriage? That question may not even make any sense. Or you know, how many dinners in a fancy French restaurant would it take to equal the happiness that comes from one marriage? That's an example that Jermaine Grisey uses. And the idea is that it seems like we can't even begin to measure these things on the same scale. Like if I said something like, how many um, Tuesdays would it take to equal the value of purple? Think, well, what are you talking about? You know, Tuesdays and purples are, are different things, right? So we, it's, not, it's not clear that we can measure all these different goods in the way that consequentialism would, would require. In these cases, we're generally talking about uh, lives killed or, or uh, lives saved. But to make consequentialism work, we'd have to measure everything in terms of happiness or the best consequences. And it's by no means clear that we can do that. I would argue, like many others, that that's not possible. So that's one problem here. I won't say much about that point today. Another problem that's more specific to these studies is the assumption that a case like the, the case about the man on the bridge is an unfamiliar situation. It's certainly unfamiliar in the sense that trolleys and footbridges are something relatively new in human history. But it's not unfamiliar in the sense that we can you know, inflict violence on one person or that we can harm one person as a way of benefiting others. So I think if you see what's most relevant about this case just as saving lives, then you're going to take it as an unfamiliar situation. 
if you see what's most relevant about this case as harming somebody who doesn't deserve it, then it may not be so unfamiliar after all. Your people have been fighting and harming each other for a long time throughout human history. Similarly with a camera, if I thought that I was in an unfamiliar situation because it's Friday afternoon, I'd say, no, you're confused about what makes, well, what's familiar or unfamiliar to the camera. The fact that it's Friday afternoon, that doesn't really matter to the camera. What's most important are things like lighting and the ambient light and the, the motion of uh, the different things that you're taking pictures of and so on. So by assuming that what's really relevant about these cases is the number of lives saved and the way that we save lives, that's really begging the question in favor of consequentialism. Because the argument on the other side would be, no, what's most relevant about this case is that you're hurting some innocent person. So that's one point. And I'll say a, a bit more about that later. Another objection to this sort of argument is that unfamiliar cases like the, the trolley case aren't the only sorts of cases that people use to challenge consequentialism. And I'll give you a few examples here. Um, First, very briefly, I'll talk about a history of trolley cases so you see where these come from. Uh, this first example has been pretty widely discussed as a challenge to consequentialism. And again, whether it's a familiar case or not, something that we can get back to later on, but the, the case of a judge uh, finds out that a crime has been committed and there's an angry mob that's demanding justice and if they're not satisfied, they're gonna go and um, take vengeance on some part of the community. You can imagine this being some kind of lynch mob, um, some other violent mob. And it seems, a lot of people have the, the intuition that framing, it, it'd be wrong for a judge to frame an innocent person and use that person as a scapegoat even to prevent deadly riots. On the other hand, uh, Philip Afoot, a famous philosopher in the uh, 20th century, contrasted that case with a case about diverting an airplane that's disabled away from a more crowded area towards a less crowded one. And I have a picture of the landing in the Hudson River. I didn't want to have something too violent where you're actually landing a plane on top of somebody. This didn't happen in the Hudson River case. Uh, I think this was in 2010. Uh, I don't think that, that, that there were any casualties at all, which was, uh, I remember that day when the news came out that a plane crashed in the Hudson River. And, you know, this is horrible. You know, we didn't know if it was a terrorist attack or imagine hundreds of people being dead. It turns out that, that there were no casualties at all. Uh, you can imagine if the pilot is steering away from Manhattan and looking at the Hudson River, seeing one person there would be unfortunate, but it still seems like it's okay to avoid uh, Manhattan and land in the, the river, even if there's one person there who's gonna be killed. Uh, again, fortunately, in this particular case, there wasn't anybody there. But Foote uses this example to argue that there seems to be a difference in how we bring about these different consequences. The number of lives saved or the number of lives lost might be the same, but the way that we do this seems to matter. A lot of us have the intuition again that framing the scapegoat is wrong, but diverting the airplane is right. And it's that airplane case that's really the basis of the trolley cases. Because Foote, in a really brilliant example, now, I wish that I could write this concisely or come up with an example that's this famous and uh, this elegant. You can see the, the trolley case is presented very simply by foot. It says to make this parallel, the parallel between the pilot and the judge, as close as possible, imagine we're talking about a, a runaway tram or a trolley, and you can see it described here. There are five men on one track, one person on the other track, and the trolley driver can avoid the five by steering towards the one. 
this illustration comes from an episode of The Good Place, which um, had a whole episode about the trolley problem. Uh, again, I wish that I could uh, write so well and concisely that they'd be making TV shows about things in my book, but that doesn't happen. Um, so it's a really nice example. It's a simple example and, pr and pretty vivid. A lot of people have a pretty strong intuition that, yeah, it would be okay to divert that trolley away from the five and towards the one. And you can see, Foote says, the question here is, why do we say that about the trolley driver if we don't say something similar about the judge? She's assuming that most of us are going to say that framing the scapegoat is wrong, no matter what, but uh, re uh, redirecting the trolley or diverting the trolley is right. Now, one answer, and this is an answer that um, is inspired by Kant. Kant, of course, didn't write about this case specifically. This came long after Kant. But one answer is that when you frame that scapegoat, or if you push that man off the bridge in the other trolley case, you're using that person simply as a means, or you're forcing that person to serve an end against his or her will. And whereas that, that doesn't seem to be happening if you divert the trolley. I'll go back to that previous slide. That one person who would be hit by, by the trolley, we're not really using him in any way. We might know that he's there if we divert the trolley, but we're not using his body as weight to, to stop the trolley, or we're not using him as a scapegoat to satisfy an angry mob. The person just unfortunately happens to, to be there. So one way to distinguish these sorts of cases is to think about the difference between causing somebody's death or causing harm and using someone merely as a means, in the sense of making that person serve an end that that person hasn't chosen for himself or herself. That's one answer. Another answer, which is more relevant to the sorts of things that Dr. Lee was talking about in his introduction, is the principle of double effect. And at uh, this point, wouldn't be so relevant in thinking about the uh, case of the man on the bridge. But in Foote's examples, we can say the judge intends that innocent person's death as a means of satisfying the mob, as a means of preventing deadly riots. Whereas the trolley driver knowingly causes or foresees that one person's death, but doesn't intend it. We can see these diagrams here. I'm trying to illustrate the, the, the difference between using somebody's death as a step in your plan and causing somebody's death as a side effect. And this distinction seems to be relevant here as well. And you can see the principle of double effect is the principle that this difference matters when you want to know whether an action is morally right or wrong. And there are uh, more complicated versions and uh, ways of defining the principle of double effect. Uh, I won't get into all the different variations now. But I think the uh, simplest way, but I've also have argued that the best way to define the principle of double effect is what you see here. It's the principle or the belief that the difference between intending death and knowingly causing death, or causing death as a foreseen side effect, makes a difference when you want to know whether an action is right or wrong. So the principle of double effect says that one way we can explain why the judge does something wrong, even though the trolley driver doesn't, is that the judge intends an innocent person's death, whereas the trolley driver doesn't intend that person's death. The trolley driver causes that person's death, but doesn't intend it. Now, one question that comes up that Dr. Lee mentioned in his introduction, you know, what exactly is an intended effect? This question is a really difficult one. It's one that both of us have written about and are still working on. Um, I'll refer to, to the former President Bush, Bush 41 here, saying it's a very good question, very direct, and I'm not going to answer it. 
I'll give a partial answer here today. I won't give a full answer because that would take a whole separate talk. But I think the simplest, although probably unsatisfying way to define unintended effect is to say that an intended effect is an effect that the agent or the person acting is trying to cause. Uh, where, so the judge is trying to execute that scapegoat as a means of satisfying the mob. Whereas the trolley driver isn't trying to kill that person on the sidetrack. The trolley driver knows that that person's gonna be run over and killed, but the trolley driver isn't trying to make that happen. So I think thinking about what we try to do uh, either as an end or as a means is helpful for thinking about intended effects. Now, if you say, well, I'm not sure about trying or what exactly does it mean to try to cause an effect. Another way of defining an intended effect is the, what you see on the bottom of the screen. You can say that an intended effect is an effect that is either the agent's goal or a step in the agent's plan to achieve that goal. In the case of the judge, that innocent person's death is a step in the judge's plan to prevent deadly riots. Whereas in the uh, trolley driver case, that person's being killed by, by the trolley isn't a step in the driver's plan. If that person somehow survived, it wouldn't make any difference to the trolley driver, whereas if the scapegoat survived, then the mob wouldn't be satisfied, so it would make a difference to the um, judge. So that's um, a couple ways of thinking about what an intended effect is. Again, there are some controversial issues and some particular cases where people who accept the principle of double effect disagree about exactly what's intended, but I'll set aside most of those questions for now. Um, although I, I, I would point out, though, that uh, I've argued that the case about the fat man on the bridge and pushing him off the bridge isn't really a good illustration of the principle of double effect, because it doesn't seem like you're intending that man's death. You're intending for that man's mass to stop the trolley, but the fact that being hit by the trolley causes injuries or death would seem to be a side effect of the plan. So uh, that's why um, people who defend the principle of double effect usually don't use the case of, of the, the bridge and the trolley as an illustration. Interestingly, it's really opponents of the principle of double effect who take these sorts of cases as illustrations of the principle. Uh, even Foote, when she presented the, the, the trolley case, she was using it to illustrate the principle of double effect, but at that time she was arguing against it. Uh, later on, she changed her mind and came to, to, to defend it and use so, so, some different cases. Um, and there are some other examples of the principle that are pretty well known here. Um, I won't read through all these, but in treating patient's pain, people often say that there's a difference between killing the patient in order to uh, end the patient's pain and using a dose of morphine or some other opioid that has the side effect of causing that patient's death. Particularly in the Catholic tradition, this is a common illustration of the principle of double effect, saying that it would always be wrong to use some kind of poison like cyanide or potassium chloride that ends pain only by killing the patient first. But it's not always wrong to use a dose of morphine that you know will slow down the patient's heart and lungs so much that it will hasten the patient's death. So that's uh, another uh, pretty well-known illustration of the principle. Another famous one, um, you can think about the difference between withholding a drug from a patient so that the patient dies, so that we can use that patient's organs for, for transplants versus uh, rationing a scarce drug. We can uh, make the numbers the same, say we're gonna uh, end up killing one person and saving five, but it seems like there's a difference between withholding a drug so that the patient dies versus rationing a drug in a way that would save five lives instead of one. 
or another common illustration would be um, targeting civilians as a means of winning a war versus killing civilians as a side effect of destroying a military target. So these are some common illustrations. Also, related to the point I was saying before, we can think about the principle of double effect, not just in these unfamiliar or contrived examples about saving one life versus five, we can think about some fairly ordinary cases. And this is not a picture of my sister and me when we were, were we young, although I probably would have done something like this when I was a kid. Um, think about the difference between taking a toy in order to incite a sibling's envy. And, not, and again, not that I would ever do that, but my sister would do that to me. So, so take the toy in order to cause envy versus taking the toy to have fun, knowing that I'm going to cause envy. And as a parent, I would say the first one is not a lot. And if I think that one of my kids is trying to incite envy, I would say, you can't do that. Whereas if I know that you're going to cause envy, maybe that'd be a good reason not to do it, but I wouldn't rule that out in the same way. Or if you want a more grown-up example of the same sort of thing, you can think about being a guest at a party and taking the last glass of wine. You may say that you shouldn't do that anyway, but it seems somehow worse to take the last glass of wine in order to spite another guest. Because some of the guests that I don't really like, aha, this is my chance to keep him from having this wine. So I, take, I, I go to the bar and I order that, that last glass of wine knowing or, or so that uh, somebody else won't have it. Versus taking that last glass of wine because I want to enjoy it, but knowing that it's the last glass. Again, it seems like the first one should be ruled out in a way that the second one wouldn't have to be. Maybe you'd end up not doing either one of them, but our um, judgment against the first one seems to be stronger, or the rule against the first sort of thing seems stricter than a rule against the, the second sort of thing. And notice, these aren't unfamiliar cases. It, it doesn't involve saving lives at a distance or doing anything that's new in human history. Take it that um, inciting envy or taking something out of spite would be something that human beings have been familiar with for thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. Okay. Now we get to, I think, uh, basic disagreement about ethics. And you can see, um, it's a still a, a bit too soon for me to be talking about this, but in the 1980s, John Elway was my childhood nemesis. Because I grew up in the Cleveland area as a Browns fan, and um, I don't want to talk about what the Broncos did to the Browns. Like I said, it's uh, still too soon. Um, but imagine that I read about voodoo or something as a kid, and I think, here's a way that I can finally get over this hump, or I'll make sure that the Browns finally win. I'm going to stab this voodoo doll of John Elway. Now, if you were my parents and you saw me doing this, I take it that you would stop me. You, you wouldn't just say, well, that's a harmless action and maybe you're, you're thinking too much about the bronze or you have some sort of sociopathic tendencies, but that's okay. I think you'd say, no, stop doing that. It, it's, you know, it's not just that it reveals a problem with me that I'm taking football too seriously or that I'm antisocial, although that might be true, but stabbing the doll makes me even worse. You know, if you're a parent, you'd say, not just that that's permissible or the action is right, but it reveals a character problem. I think you'd say, this action is wrong, or this action should not be done. And this example about a voodoo doll comes up. There are some philosophers who would say, the action isn't really wrong or impermissible because it's harmless, assuming that voodoo doesn't really work, or at least the way that I'm performing voodoo on this Elway doll doesn't really work. Some philosophers would say, then it's not really wrong because you're not hurting anybody else or causing any bad consequences. Maybe your parents should hire a psychologist and work on this, but you're not really doing something wrong. Whereas I would say, no, that action really is wrong. If you're stabbing a voodoo doll, 
Even if you're not hurting somebody, you're doing something wrong because of what you're doing to yourself. We'll talk more about that. Um, so I use that example to illustrate two views of moral principles. And I think we see evidence of both of these views in our culture today. Um, one view that you see on the left would treat moral principles sort of like traffic laws. And uh, we, we have traffic laws because we all have uh, different destinations we're going to when we're driving, you know, different goals, different things we want to do. But we need traffic laws so we can all get along. If we didn't have traffic laws like uh, stop signs and speed limits, it'd be chaos out there on the roads. Right? We, we need to have these laws so as we're going to our different destinations, we don't crash into each other or uh, get in each other's way. And it's certainly good to have traffic laws. I don't mean to argue uh, against that. But another way that you can think about moral principles are as a parent's rules. I don't know if you can, you won't be able to read all this here. Um, it seems like mom has a lot of rules. I would say that she should cut down uh, on the number of rules here. But that's the picture that I found. So you have the speed limit versus mom's rules. Now, parents can have some kind of rules that will be similar to traffic laws. Like you can't uh, hit your sister, or you have to go to school at a certain time, you have to share your toys. Rules for getting along with, uh, with each other, basically. But parents don't seem to be only interested in having their kids get along with each other or get along with other kids. We're also gonna have some rules that are aimed at turning kids into certain sort of people. And I, I already got ahead of myself. I mentioned a rule like going to school or uh, becoming educated. We want kids to be educated, not just so they can do good things for other people, but because we think that that's part of our kids being happy that, themselves. I would like my kids to go up and be um, you know, great scientists or doctors who find the cure for cancer or do all these great things, but I wouldn't want that to come at the cost of their being miserable that, themselves. Right? Or I, would, I don't want them to be getting into fights at school or bullying or being nasty people at school, but I also don't want them to be miserable uh, on their own. So we, we can think of a parent's rules as including these sorts of rules like traffic laws, but also including more than that. Whereas on this other view, we'd see moral rules as, as relevant only for cooperating with each other. And it's that view on the left that you see often from consequentialists and also people who disagree with the principle of double effect. Shall go back here. And I think uh, that's because if you're thinking about some of these cases, like I'll go back to the example about euthanasia. If I'm a patient and I'm taking a pill that's potassium chloride that's going to end my pain by causing death versus uh, taking a dose of, of morphine that's going to uh, suppress my pain but have the side effect of slowing down my heart and causing death, from the outside, those two actions are going to look the same. Or if we think about some of these illustrations, notice I just have one picture of the uh, toy example or one picture of the wine example because that's all we really need. I mean, I could have two pictures where they're the same, but from the outside, it's going to look the same. Whether that kid is taking a toy to incite envy or taking a toy to have fun is gonna look the same in terms of the effects that we can observe. Or whether I go up to the bar and take that glass of wine because, because I'm trying to, to spite somebody else or because I want to enjoy it, that's going to look the same uh, from the outside. So in terms of how our actions affect other people, the difference between what we intend and what we cause as a side effect doesn't really matter. If we're going to think about why that difference is relevant, I think we have to think about um, how intending different things would form us as an agent. You might say, well, 
intending to take a toy to cause envy, that's going to change your character in a way that we don't want, whereas merely causing envy as a side effect wouldn't have that same effect on your character. Or taking that last glass of wine out of spite, that's not just going to show that I'm a nasty antisocial person, it's going to make me even worse. Whereas if I uh, t take that last glass of wine, knowing that it's going to have those same bad effects, that doesn't seem to form my character in the same way. Well, again, you can think about the, the voodoo doll example. I would say stabbing a voodoo doll in order to hurt John Elway, that's not just going to reveal there's something wrong with me, it's going to make me even worse. It's going to take whatever problems I have in my character and uh, strengthen those or um, deepen whatever problems I already have. So it doesn't just show this a problem, it makes it even worse. So thinking about this difference in the ways of how we think about moral rules, I think is one way to explain why the difference between what we intend and what we cause as a side effect is relevant when we're thinking about how we should act. Okay, one more case to illustrate the disagreement, and then I'll wrap things up here. Um, now, many of you may have covered this already. There's a story in Plato's Apology where Socrates is making his defense to the Athenian jury, and he tells the story about Leon of Salamis. And the government at the time, or the tyrants who were in charge, ordered Socrates and other people to go get Leon of Salamis so that they could, could execute him. And Socrates heard this order and went home. Now, as far as we know, the other people in the group ended up getting him and, and uh, killing Leon. It's not as if Socrates' refusal to take part in this action saved Leon. At least if it did, Socrates didn't make that claim. He used the example to argue that he doesn't care much about death because he was willing to be killed by the tyrants as opposed to go and, and taking part in this unjust execution of Leon. And again, if we're thinking about this action just in terms of the consequences, I don't think it's really gonna make sense. Right? Why wouldn't Socrates go along with it? It's not as if his going along with the other group is going to make Leon any worse off or hurt Leon anymore, but by not doing this, Socrates is putting himself at risk of death and his family and friends are gonna be upset by that. So if we're just thinking about the consequences for other people, it seems we can make an argument that Socrates should have gone along with what the tyrants asked, assuming there was no way that he could save Leon anyway, and join in in the bad action. But like many people, Socrates seems to have the idea that this action is wrong no matter what, or taking part in an unjust execution is wrong, not just because of how it affects Leon, but because of what that would do to me. If I, take, if I, as Socrates, take part in this unjust execution, I'm corrupting my own character, not just hurting Leon. And again, I think we can see this sort of case as a way to think about different views of moral principles and why some people believe that what you intend is going to sh uh, shape your character differently than what you cause as a side effect. Okay, uh, I know I'm short on time. Uh, one final analogy to wrap things up here. Um, and this is an analogy to think about all the stuff I've talked about in the context of debunking arguments. Imagine that we're all members of a college football team and we're, we're getting ready to play a rival on Saturday and a member of the other team's girlfriend sends us the diagrams of all their plays and audibles in a private message on, on Instagram. So now we have a chance to use these diagrams to practice during the week so we know whatever's coming. When the quarterback gets up to the line and calls the audible, we'll know what's coming because we have seen diagrams of these plays. Now, I think this case is ambiguous. I'm not arguing that it would necessarily be wrong to use those diagrams, 
uh, assuming that you're not breaking any rules or you haven't stolen them or you're not violating any um, NCAA rules or anything, I think there's a real debate that you could have about whether using those diagrams would be fair or unfair. You can imagine one player, I'll call him player one, says, no, I don't want to use these. I'm a competitor. I want to win by uh, practicing harder or being more skilled, making better decisions on the field. I don't want to win just because diagrams of the other team's plays fell into our lap. You also could imagine a player saying, well, really, using these plays is uh, relying on, on good luck, but that's not that much different than having the ball bounce your way or having the ref make a back haul that turns out to be in, in your favor. So you can imagine that players on the team are arguing back and forth about whether they should use these diagrams or not. And the team psychologist steps in with an argument like this. Obviously, this is meant to be along the lines of the debunking argument that we saw before. The team psychologist says, I've studied your brains as you make these different judgments, and I found that those of you who oppose using the diagrams tend to make that judgment very quickly, and you have a gut reaction. The uh, emotional automatic centers of your brain are more active. Those of you who say that you should use the plays I, find, I found that the uh, cognitive areas of your brain are more active. You tend to take longer to think through the different odds of winning and think through all these consequences. So if we say that you should set aside all these distractions and just focus on maximizing wins, then it's clear that you should use these diagrams. Now, again, whether you should use the diagrams or not isn't clear to me. But what is clear to me is that that's a bad argument. Because if you're player one, you should say that the psychologist is missing the point. Right? By assuming that all you should be thinking about is maximizing wins, that's assuming the very point that's in dispute. Right? It's begging the question here. Because what that first player was arguing is that being a, a competitor isn't just about winning. Obviously, any competitor is going to care about winning. But the player was arguing that I care about how we win, too. I want to win in certain ways, but not in other ways. So by saying we're going to focus only on maximizing wins, that's assuming the disputed point. And I think that um, moral psychologists who use debunking arguments for consequentialism are making a similar kind of mistake. If you assume that acting morally is all about causing good consequences or all about cooperating with each other to cause the most happiness that, that we can, then of course you're, you're going to see these sorts of trolley cases as unfamiliar cases and see non-consequentialist judgments as a distraction from thinking about what really matters. But if you think that moral principles are about causing good consequences and also uh, developing certain character traits or becoming certain kinds of people, then you, you have room to say that an action is wrong even if it would maximize the number of lives saved. Just like in this case here, I think a player could say, I don't want to win no matter what. Or for me, thinking about what we do as a team isn't only about how we maximize our chances of a winning. I want to win in certain ways or be a certain kind of competitor as well. So my response to a moral psychologist like Green would be similar to the response that player one might have to, to this team psychologist. Say that these, um, even if you're right about how the brain works, you're, you're still making some um, bad assumptions about what morality is and uh, what's relevant more generally. Mm -hmm.